We are entering our third month of the one-year Bible reading now, right, in the New Testament. So if, if you make it through the third month, you're doing, you're doing really well. And it, you're, you're probably going to make it all the way. You know, most people that drop out, they're dropping out pretty soon, February-ish. If you, if you make it through March here, you're, you're killing it. You're, you're going to get there. You're going to do it. Um, we're entering deep waters now in the Bible reading with the book of Hebrews. The Hebrews are, the book of Hebrews is wonderful, deep, deep waters. So to help us understand the book of Hebrews, we have reposted all my sermons from uh, when we taught through that book on the website. So if you go to the homepage of the website, there's a place you can click there and you can be listening to the teachings through the book of Hebrews this month as you're reading through the book and hopefully that'll just help you understand. So if you need that, that's a resource for you. If you don't need that, no problem. If you don't want to muddy the waters with my rambling, then just read the book for yourself and I'm sure the Holy Spirit will help you with that. But let's persevere in that wonderful waters now in March in the book of Hebrews. We're now teaching through the book of Matthew, so let's open up there. We are in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. We're looking at the temptation of Jesus here, after last week seeing the baptism of Jesus. And the title of this sermon is, Going Toe-to-Toe with Temptation. Will this relate to anybody here? Anybody at all? Okay. Anybody here deal with temptation ever? This is for you. Going toe-to-toe with temptation. Much to be learned here. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm teaching and reading from the New American Standard Bible. It begins in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Little understatement there. (laughs) Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city. And he had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to hear your wonderful word. Your living, active, infallible, inerrant, 
absolutely true, fully authoritative, the very word of God. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us now to comprehend your word, what it says, what it says to us, and what it means for our lives. We are people who know very well what it's like to go toe-to-toe with temptation. We are people who would like to walk away from those confrontations more victorious in you than previously. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the great victor over the enemy. That from every angle, on every front, you have triumphed. And you are the great and glorious king whose blessing and rule have been brought to us in your person. Thank you, God. Help me to teach and preach in a way that brings you glory and helps the church. Help us to hear and obey your word together. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all have a sense that this text applies to us because we all experience temptation pretty much just about, I would say, every day. Temptation is part of the human condition. But also, temptation is part of the Christian condition. Being a follower of Jesus does not make us exempt from temptation. In fact, we discover it may make us even more a target of the tempter as we endeavor to follow Jesus. And it tends to increase the temptingness of temptation. Things before that were just a no-brainer, yeah, I'll do that. Now, because we have a new nature that's alive to God and wants to pursue righteousness, we actually find ourselves now tempted by those things. Whereas before, we just used to do them. They weren't really a temptation. They were a given. Our new nature, our new position in Christ, the new life that we have, has in many ways increased the temptingness of temptation. And we have become, if we're really endeavoring to follow Jesus, big targets for the tempter himself. So being a Jesus follower, being a Christian, does not exempt us from temptation. But being Jesus followers, being Christians, does change for us the nature of temptation. That is to say, we are no longer powerless in the face of it. There is real hope for us, real resource for us when we go toe-to-toe with temptation and the tempter himself. And in this text, Jesus teaches us to win in the face of temptation and against the tempter, the devil. Good news has been brought to us in the person and the work of Jesus. The good news that the fall of humanity in the garden is not the final determiner of the human condition. That's good news. We were subject to Adam and his failure, but Christ has come, the book of Romans says, as the second Adam who gives us a new beginning. The condition, the fallen condition of humanity because of the garden is not the final determiner of human condition. 
We have the good news that in Jesus we have a victorious, all-powerful, and perfect King who redeems our fallen condition and who redeems our failures through the cross and through his perfect obedience to the Father and his victory over the enemy. We have redemption in him. We have the good news that Jesus is for us, the merciful and compassionate high priest who loves us and gave himself for us, who knows our woes and our infirmities, knows what it's like to go toe-to-toe with temptation and offers us great help in the moment of need. Good news has been brought to us in Jesus. Now, early in the text, we gain witness to two things that we already know. Two difficult truths, but we already know them from experience and from Scripture. It says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want you to notice the difficulty of that statement. Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God is sovereign. God was not exempt from this moment. God wasn't absent from this moment. God was in some way behind this moment. God's Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted. God is sovereign. But only Satan is the one who's sinister. God is sovereign, but God is sinister. God stood behind the orchestration of the moment, but he certainly didn't stand behind the evil of the temptations. In fact, we find that God uses such things in orchestrating them and redeeming them. He uses our trials and even temptations for our growth and for our good. Look at the evidence from James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, pause right there for one moment. The Greek word trials is the same word for temptations. And obviously, depending on context, there's some different nuance in meanings. But there is definitely a large degree of overlap, even as we'll see here from James chapter 1. So this doesn't exclude moments of temptation. Those certainly are part of the trials that we experience. And notice what the text is saying. Consider it all joy whenever you face various trials. This helps us to think about God's spirit leading Jesus into this moment of confrontation. There is something good to be experienced in going toe-to-toe with temptation. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see that? The testing of your faith produces perseverance. There are two ways that the human body grows in strength. Nourishment and resistance. Nourishment, right? We've got to get the right nourishment and resistance, right? This is the, the principle behind working out. If you see a body that's incredibly strong, it has experienced some resistance. This is true spiritually too. There are two ways in which we grow. Through nourishment, spiritual nourishment, and resistance brought to us in the form of trials and temptations, Because you know that testing your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work 
There's something that's accomplished when we persevere. The idea there is standing firm through trials, not giving in, not giving up, not compromising. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. There's the goal, mature and complete, right? That's just talking about full growth in Christ Jesus, where we're supposed to be as followers of him in him, not lacking anything. Now look at what verse 12 says. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's actually a blessing in facing trial. There's a blessing in the moments of difficulty and temptation if we go the way that Jesus went. And what we see from these sort of texts and from the story of Scripture is that so often what Satan means for evil, God works for good. Isn't that what we learned from Joey, also known as Joseph? Little brother Joey, who was thrown in the pit by his brothers because they didn't like him and they were annoyed by the things that God was telling him and they threw him in a pit and lo and behold, years later, he ends up second in command in Egypt. And what his brothers meant for evil, God determined and worked for good. And so much of life is like that. God means something here in this text and leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He means something good to be worked. Satan meant something evil. God is behind the good. Satan is behind the temptations. James 1 also says that don't let anyone say when they're tempted, I'm being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is sovereign. Satan is sinister. We see that interplay in verse 1. Verse 2, we see something else that we already know by Scripture and experience. It says in verse 2, And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's not what we know. We know you're hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. I'm thinking of something more deep here. Can you imagine the spiritual high place, if we could use that sort of language, that Christ was experiencing at this moment? Just after his baptism, where you'll remember the heavens were open, the spirit descended, and the voice of God resounded saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Christ is led by the spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights just like Moses did when the law was given, just like Elijah did, representing the 40 years in the wilderness, the wanderings of Israel. But but we know what happens during such times of fasting. Fasting was common in Jewish culture at this time. Often it was something that the religious would do two times a week, and it meant that they were drawing near to and seeking God in its purest form. So the idea was just, look, I'm not going to eat, and I'm going to lose some weight, and this is going to be good. The idea was I'm going to abstain from normal things so that I could spend extra energy and time seeking God. So can you imagine after his baptism, the sky rolled back, the spirit descending, the resounding voice of the father, and then communing for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, just the father and Jesus. We probably can't imagine it, but let us just realize that this would be a real spiritual high, so to speak, high place, a mountaintop sort of experience. You get that? Mountaintop experience. So here's what we all know, and we see in the text and we know from life. After every mountain, there comes a valley. We know that. That's not to be pessimistic, right? That's not to be fatalistic. 
It is rather realistic. After every mountain, there comes a valley. That is the natural geography of the world that God has made, and that is the geography of the spiritual landscape. We often have these spiritual mountaintop experiences, and after them, there will be a valley of some sort. But it's okay. The fruit is grown in the valley. Mountaintops are beautiful for perspective and the refreshment and the glory that we behold there. But we don't grow fruit trees on the mountaintops. We grow the fruit trees in the valley. So God is ordained both in the world, natural landscape, and in our spiritual realities that mountaintop experiences are followed by valley experiences from the high of baptism and fasting to the low of confrontation and temptation. James already told us, though, that it's in those valley experiences, those times of trials and temptation, right, where there's a real good work to be accomplished. So suddenly we find ourselves from the first two verses of the text okay with some things that are really hard in life. The sovereignty of God and the existence of evil. Ah, it's there. The mountaintop followed by the valley. Ah, it's there. And if we're to think of the baptism of Christ as sort of his coronation as the king, right, the coming king, the Messiah, then we might think of the temptation of Christ as the challenge to his kingship. Every king, when he takes the throne, is going to have some sort of challenge for that, and he's going to have to exert his rule. And in ancient lands, that worked out certain ways, and in our land, that works out certain ways. We're in an election year, and when we get a new king, so to speak, he will create a new administration. He'll extend his rule and what he wants to do, and this is the way of kings. And so we see now that the rule and the blessing brought to us in Christ as the king is being challenged by this confrontation with the enemy. And the temptation, make no mistake about it, is designed by Satan that Christ might fail in his role as king and Messiah to deflect his obedience in extending the blessing and the rule of God into the world. And we get very well the sorts of temptations that the tempter brought to Jesus. We get these. We, we experience these all the time. I mean, you think about the nature of the temptation of the bread. The idea there is use your resources to satisfy yourself first. We get that. That's a, that's a major struggle within us. We get these well. Hey, listen, if you're really a son of God, then turn, you're, you're hungry, you haven't eaten for 40 days, turn these stones into bread. Use your resources, what's available to you, for yourself first. We get that. Secondly, we get this idea. Demand that God always meet your expectations. That's a satanic temptation. Demand that God always meet your, te- your expectations. We'll dive into these more deeply in a moment. But this was the idea. He took him up on the temple and he said, listen, throw yourself down and in essence, demand of God that he rescue you from this situation. We struggle greatly when God doesn't meet our expectations. Satan is always trying to get us to live in this place of disappointment with God. We get this one well too. Don't go the way of the cross. That hurts too much. 
always take the shortcut. Jesus, you're a king. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, excuse me. Psalm 2, God promised his son a kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, he said that his son would have a kingdom. You're going to have a kingdom. Listen to what your father has planned for you to get to that kingdom. He has the cross in mind, some real suffering, some real pain, some real sacrifice. Jesus, I can spare you any of that. Take the shortcut. Take the easy way. I'll give you kingdoms. Kingdoms is what you want. I'll give you kingdoms. Let's deal with it here and now. Don't, Don't go the way of the cross. Whenever you have a chance, compromise and take the easy way out. God's way is far too difficult. Does this sound familiar to any of us? Or is it just me and Jesus? No, it's all of us together. Jesus, and we'll dive into the details more deeply in a moment, Jesus resisted these and came off victorious and shows us the way. So here's the question for us. How do we, in light of the text, win against the devil? Let's cut to the chase. How do we, in light of the text, win against the devil? Well, clearly, we do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Two things, very simply. Number one, he resisted the devil. He stood his ground. He didn't just immediately give up and give in. We seldom talk about resisting temptation because we often just give up and give in. This is an important point. Jesus stood his ground. He actually said no. He actually didn't go the enemy's way. There was some real resistance here. The second thing that he did was he retorted with scripture. He stood on truth. He resisted the devil and he responded or retorted with scripture. He stood his ground and he stood on truth. Jesus had some resolve and the word of God. Strength in the spirit and trust in the truth. Unwillingness to yield and a wielding of the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, all these things are available to us. We too in the face of temptation, can show ourselves to be unwilling to yield and to yield the sword of the, wield, excuse me, the sword of the Spirit. We have strength in the Spirit and we can trust in the truth. We can have resolve, no, I'm not going to do it. And the Word of God. He resisted the devil and he retorted with Scripture. Now let's look at some promises, some hopeful promises about resisting the devil. A few passages come to mind that are helpful for us. I found them to be true. James chapter four, verse seven. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a wonderful promise. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's what we saw at the end of it all. In verse 11, it says, then the devil left Jesus. He resisted and the devil eventually gave up and left. Now the opposite is true. The flip side of that coin is entertain the devil and he will cling to you. This is a promise of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That thing will not go on forever. It isn't a never-ending trial or temptation. Submit to God, 
I want to do what's right before God. Resist the devil. Have some resolve, some unwillingness to yield, some strength in the spirit. And he will flee from you. Entertain the devil and he will cling to you. Second hopeful promise about resisting the devil is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I've, I've quoted this to you the last several weeks. I want to just give it to you in black and white now from the NLT. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. That's humbling and sobering. And that exposes a lie of the enemy right there. Pause right there. Look at me. Because when we're in the midst of trials and temptations, here's what we always think. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody has ever been what I'm going through. Nobody understands the pressure and the pain and the disappointment. The word of God just says, everybody does. You're not special. You're not unique in your suffering or your trial or your temptation. This is normal human stuff. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. God is faithful. Listen to this promise. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you could stand. That's a wonderful promise, right? That, that's a, another way of saying resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It's not going to go on forever. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. This is part of the function of Christ's kingship is he's come into the world and said, okay, listen, parameters on temptation. I'm the king. I'm setting the borders. I'm putting borders on temptation. This is wonderful. Then it says, when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Isn't that good? There's always a way out. We don't get to say the devil made me do it. We don't get to say I had no other choice. There is always a righteous way. There is always a way out. These are promises. The reason that we we don't often experience this is because we just don't often enough stand firm right? Think about the last time you were tempted and you gave in. What if you had just kept saying no and just stood firm in that resolve and that unwillingness to yield and that strength in the spirit? Then you would experience these promises and it would grow your faith and build your faith and increase your joy in the Lord. And you'd have a different experience. There is a different experience in life from obeying Jesus to obeying the devil. final verse that comes to mind for this verse is 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. There's that language. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. There's that humiliating statement again. Resist him standing firm in your faith. We're all going through it, brother. We're all experiencing it, sister. Let's all together resolve to stand firm in our faith. Yeah, the devil is real. Yeah, he's on the prowl. Yeah, he's come to kill, steal, and destroy. But King Jesus has put parameters and a leash on the old dog. So resist him standing firm in your faith. And then look at this promise in verse 10 that we'll experience. And the God of all grace, 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, I want you to note there that the Bible never says you will never suffer. It doesn't say that. That is not part of the promises of God. After you have suffered a little while, will himself, 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 everyone wants to know, pause for a moment, look at me. Everyone wants to know from verse 11 of our text, what did it mean that angels came and ministered to Jesus? What was that like? Who cares? He got angels. We're promised God himself here. The God of all grace will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's the result of going toe-to-toe with temptation and standing firm in the resolve to obey Jesus and unwillingness to yield. Strengthen the spirit. God will restore, make strong, uh, make us firm and steadfast. This is wonderful, wonderful news about going toe-to-toe with temptation and about resisting the devil. Now, we also have wonderful news about the real power in God's word. You you remember the the two-handed approach that Jesus took. He resisted the devil and he responded with God's word. So a couple promises very succinctly about God's word and the power therein to keep us. All from Psalm 119. How can a young person stay pure? By the way, I would argue that this works for old people too. Can I get a witness? All right. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. Here's this famous one. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what's going on with Jesus here. Notice that Jesus didn't say this. Oh, Satan, that's a good one. Uh, Let me call my pastor. I'm sure he knows the right verse. Let me call him up and ask him and I'll get back to you on that. He was ready with a response. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. When was the last time you memorized Deuteronomy? Apparently it's valuable. All of Jesus' responses were from the book of Deuteronomy. He didn't have to look him up. He had the word in his heart, so to speak. So he was ready in the moment of confrontation. See, so look how this works. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That means for the Christian then, reading the word, remembering the word. Reading the word, memorizing the word. Digesting the word. Jeremiah said, I found your words and I ate them and they were sweet to me. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Colossians 3.17. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So then, so then, so then, the other part of that is true then. If we don't hide God's word in our heart, we are sure to sin against him. The other part of that is true. And I would argue that you have never seen a Christian who's walking faithfully and victoriously in the face of the onslaught of temptation day after day who hasn't hidden the word of God in their heart. Show me a Christian who's walking in victory in Jesus and has neglected God's word, reading it, memorizing it, studying it, chewing on it. Show me one. Okay, I was waiting for you to show me one. 
And verse 105, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. In those moments of darkness, when we're facing temptation and we need to know the way to go, what made the difference for Jesus? The word of God. Now, as I said, all of Jesus' retorts were from the book of Deuteronomy, written thousands of years even before the time of Christ. I want you to notice why that is important. According to the mindset of Jesus, the word of God in its entirety is applicable to our world and our lives today. Jesus didn't hold the view that many in our culture do. Well, that's old and that's outdated. And what could that possibly mean for me? Deuteronomy was thousands of years before even the time of Christ. And to Jesus, it had immediacy. Jesus sees that the word of God applies to our lives right now. He was able to apply the principles of God's word to his current situation, to the moment at hand. This is good news about God's word. This stands contrary to so much much of what the world and so-called academia would say about God's word. Jesus here affirms the reliability and unchangeability of God's word. That God's word is reliable all the way from Deuteronomy, all the way from the beginning to the end. And it's unchangeable nature. He didn't subscribe to a a trajectory hermeneutic where he said, well, you know, times have changed, so we got to see God's word change and what it means. Not according to Jesus. Jesus affirms the life-sustaining value of Scripture when he quotes from Deuteronomy. Jesus affirms all of Scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. Jesus wasn't into picking and choosing the good parts. All parts. Every word of Holy Scripture is from God. So therefore, Jesus is also affirming the nature and the source of Scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is the word of God? Is it of human origin or divine origin? It's divine. Jesus himself said it is the word of God. All of it. So no parts are to be neglected, discounted, or dismissed. Because Jesus views the author of the Bible as God himself, and therefore he believes what we ought to believe, that it has real power that it's life-giving and importantly, listen, and importantly for all of us, me included, that it is to be obeyed. Jesus had what we would call a high view of scripture. It's the very word of God from cover to cover. It's life-giving. It's powerful. It's authoritative, which means it is to be heeded carefully. Obedience to God's word was important to Jesus. Therefore, it ought to be important to Jesus' followers. Amen? Amen. And the same resource of God's word that Jesus invoked when he went toe-to-toe with temptation is available to us. The same resource. Even though Jesus was tempted to do something that we could never do, right? Receive all the kingdoms of the world, 
stand on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off, turn stones to bread. Even though he was tempted to do different things that we could never do, he used the same resource. And he used it in the same way that we might use it. He didn't quote, though he could have, passages that applied only to the Messiah King who would come. He didn't quote those. He quoted passages that applied to all of Israel and so all of the world through God's word. Truth that is for and applies to all of us. Jesus overcame temptation with the same resources available to Christians. The best advice I've ever been given to me in my life was given to me by my wife. It was at a time where I was struggling with some real temptation. And this was long ago because I don't struggle anymore at all with temptation ever. So (laughs) I'm so glad that we have a church that laughs at that instantly. (laughs) Nobody here even thought for a second that that might be serious. Good. I was struggling with some real things. And she said to me, sweetheart, here's what you need to do. You need to know the areas in which you're being tempted regularly or frequently or right now, especially. You need to know what those are call them out and identify them and then search the Bible to find scriptures that pertain to them and memorize those scriptures. And when you're tempted, start to repeat those scriptures in your heart and mind and with your mouth. Best advice I've ever been given. Know where you are tempted and know what the word of God says about those temptations. And when you find yourself, sweetheart, going toe-to-toe with temptation... Invoke the word of God that speaks to that issue. That was the best advice I've ever been given. Now, what she didn't have was all the verses for me. You know, that's what we want. That's what you want right now. You want me to give you all the verses. That's what you want. You're saying, Pastor Britt, you know how we're tempted. Just give us the verses. Well, that's part of the process of it, is that we have to and we get to and we ought to search God's word. And then when we come across those things that are so real and pertinent and current and, and, and dealing with where we're at, just like it was for Jesus, then we commit those to memory. So that in the time of need, the Spirit can bring to remembrance what Christ has taught us. It's the best advice I've ever been given. Changed my life. Now remember, as we're endeavoring to do that, that Satan always challenges what God says. I mean, that's how it all began in the garden. This same deceiver, the same adversary, Satan, the serpent in the garden, came to Eve and said, oh, come on, Eve, you're such a conservative. Did God really say? Did God really mean? I mean, isn't that a little outdated? That was like yesterday in the garden. Is that really what God meant? I mean, don't be such a literalist. Satan always challenges what God says. But he won't do it through such profane ways usually. He'll do it by appealing to the two things that matter to us most. Ourselves and what we wish we had. That's how Satan will do it. By appealing to the two things that matter to us most. Ourselves and what we wish we had. Eve, don't you want to be like God? God just wants to keep you down. 
God is a cosmic killjoy. God has only told you these things because God is a God of no fun. He doesn't want you to have fun and he doesn't want you to be awesome. Eve, you deserve to have fun and you deserve to be awesome. Don't you want to be more? And Eve, don't you want more? I mean, what kind of God doesn't let you eat the fruit from that one tree? Oh, I know he said you can eat from every other tree in the garden, but what a jerk that he would keep back the one tree from you. I know you have so much and all these different trees, but Eve, don't you want what you can't have? Eve, isn't the grass always greener? Eve, let me tell you, because I know forbidden fruit is sweeter. Satan will always challenge and cast aspersion on what God has said, and he will do it through the means of the two things that matter to us most, ourselves and what we don't have. So he said to Jesus twice, if you are the son of God. Now don't misunderstand this. He wasn't doubting the identity of Jesus as the unique son of God, his divine nature and his human nature. He he wasn't doubting that. In fact, that Greek word if means indeed or as is the case. He's not doubting the identity. He knew exactly who Jesus was. That's why he meets him in the wilderness to tempt him. He's not doubting his identity so much as he is demanding proof of it. That's different. He's not doubting his identity. He is demanding proof of it. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. I know, I know, I know. You went down to meet John at the Jordan and you went down in the waters and when you came up, the sky opened and the Spirit descended and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard it too. But prove it. Do something worthy of it. You get that? In other words, this whole unconditional love of the Father thing, not real. You need, Jesus, to show yourself worthy. You need to do something of real worth. We experience this temptation every day because we too have an identity in Christ as the beloved of God that Satan knows full well is true. He's not going to doubt our identity. He's just going to suck us into the trap of always trying to prove it. But the identity was given to us freely in Christ. We are the beloved of God, not of something that we've done, but in spite of all that we've done. The trap of Satan as it pertains to our identity is to always get us to try to prove it. This is what we call in our common vernacular, religion. Religion is man's attempts to please God to gain his approval. The gospel is God's gift in Christ to make us the undeserved beloved daughters and sons of God in him. So he's just saying to him, just prove it. Do something of worth. 
What he wants to do to us, the enemy, is destroy our place of rest in God's love and always getting us toiling to earn it again. I mean, don't we do this? Don't we try to make up for something when we do something really bad? I did something really bad. I'm, I'm going to go to like a midweek Bible study this week to make up for it, God. I did something really bad. I'm going to read two chapters of Hebrews this week, God, on the same day. And then the next day, I'll read them over again. I did something real bad. I'm going to give more, whatever it is. Don't, don't we try to do that in our mindset? It's hard to break out of this demonically inspired spirit of religion. So deeply also ingrained by our culture that says, earn it, prove it. Be better, try harder. But that's the very thing that the gospel has saved us from. So the enemy is always coming after that. So instead of when we fail, we come to the throne of grace where we can receive mercy in the time of need. Satan tries to get us on our own thrones trying to prove to God how we're worthy of, our lo- of his love. It's just not the way that it works. Does that make sense to you? You see what he's doing? with the identity of Jesus there, but I want us to remember how baptism prepares us for temptation. I want you to remember that Jesus was baptized before he ever did anything in his ministry or went to the cross or any of that good stuff. And the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the same way, we have a new and unearned identity. And it's grace. Baptism prepares us for temptation and that we have been immersed into something that is not our doing. We have been plunged into the glorious waters of God's deep, deep love. And the more that we learn to rest in the deep waters of God's love, the less the enemy has on us in these areas. See, we're getting savvy to the devil's tricks here. Very importantly, though, the flip side of that coin, earn it, is the accusation from the enemy of, you've lost it. God can never accept you again. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. But Jesus could face temptation because he trusted the experience of baptism. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So because he believed the reverberating voice of God, the reverberating voice of God, because he believed what God said, the enemy didn't have anything on him in trying to get him to prove his place before God as a beloved son. These are deep issues at hand. Look at verses three and four again. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. These are deep issues. This is the issue of contentment and true nourishment from God. Contentment and true nourishment from God. Verses six and seven again. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels charge concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the issue of true trust in God or facing our circumstances while resting in God's love and sovereignty. 
verses 8 and 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is a deep issue of cross-oriented, true allegiance to God. True allegiance to God, true trust in God, true nourishment in God. Think what's to be gained or lost in these issues. True nourishment from God. Of course, Jesus was hungry. But Jesus said there is a deeper principle in life that sustains me beyond these things. Jesus will say in a couple chapters in Matthew, is not life more than food? Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, my food is to do the will of the Father. Jesus lays claim to what we need to know, that in life, as it pertains to contentment, there is something deeper than merely meeting our needs. There is nourishment from God. And what the the loss is that we, let's be honest now, we so readily attend to our physical needs and we so often neglect our spiritual needs. Is this not true? The loss is that I don't know if we really believe Jesus and what he's saying here about another kind of food. That is perhaps evidence in how little time we, we spend in the study of scripture and prayer and communing with God and in his presence. We think that we need little spiritual sustenance, but we never let ourselves get physically hungry if we can avoid it. We just don't do that in this country. Oh, I'm not hungry. I just had a snack. Meanwhile, the spiritual reality of our lives, which is the the main component of our lives that really sustains and drives and forms life, is where we become emaciated. And Satan says, let's just make it base and simple. You don't have bread. Make some bread. Jesus says, there's something way deeper than bread in this life with God. Life is more than food. And if we make it about those simple external things, we're going to miss so much. A life sustained by food is a very poor life. Think of all that Jesus had at this moment, thinking about contentment. He had the experience of baptism with the Father. He had intimacy with him through fasting, the Spirit upon him. The only thing he didn't have was bread. And Satan is always trying to get us to think about what we don't have. And the more we have spiritual nourishment, the less we're thrown off by the other things that we don't have. Jesus is teaching us here to live from a place of contentment in him because we're spiritually nourished by him. Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. Satan wants us to live out of a place of discontentment and we will do just about anything when we're living out of a place of discontentment. And it's hard, it's a battle because our entire culture is based on your discontentment. Our entire economy is based on continually helping us realize or believe the lie of discontentment. That's how our whole economy functions. I know this very well myself. The situation of circumstances. When he says, listen, you're going to quote scripture to me, Jesus, No problem. I can quote scripture too. 
And Satan quotes Psalm 91. He leaves part of it out. That's very important. The part where he will guard you in all your ways, he, he leaves that out. And we get into a little scripture war here. Satan says, okay, I can quote, quote scripture too. Here's, here's Psalm 91. Now, he misquotes it, and then he misapplies it. He's basically suggesting to Jesus what Psalm 91 means, he will give his angels charge concerning you on their hands and they will bear you up lest you strike your foot on a stone. What that means, Jesus, is that nothing will ever go wrong in your life. You're telling me you don't need bread because you're sustained by the Father and you're all spiritual fasting and full of the Spirit. Well, let's see how that goes. Let's see how the Father's love plays out now. If the Father really loved you, He would never let anything bad happen to you. I've stared down the barrel of that one when my daughter was diagnosed with cancer and then she died. I've heard this one a million times all night long for years. What is the temptation here? The temptation is to make ourselves the master and God the slave. God, here's how I want my life to go. Here are the circumstances I want to see and I don't want to see. That's not what scripture teaches. Jesus responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's a quote from Deuteronomy which was quoting from Numbers when Israel was in the wilderness and they were complaining because they had been brought out of Egypt and delivered from Pharaoh and all these wonderful things, but now they were thirsty and they complained against Moses and they complained against God and God provided for them miraculously. But Moses said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. What, 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 what do you think this Christianity is? That every time something goes wrong in your life, God is obligated to miraculously deliver you from that circumstance? You're living in a fairy tale, not the real world. God never said that he would do that. He promised that he would be with us. He would never leave us or forsake us, but in this world, we would have trouble. But take heart, he has overcome the world. We want to be the masters and we want God to be the slave. I want you to fix this circumstance and that one. I want you to make that go away and I don't ever want to have to deal with that. That's not life and that isn't Christianity and that isn't Bible. But that's the temptation. And Jesus stood firm against that. And so finally, the enemy says, listen, here's the deal. Let's cut to the chase here. I know you're a king and you're looking for a kingdom. I will give you all the kingdoms in the world. Just bow down to me and worship me. In other words, any shortcut, the ends justifies the means. How about just a little compromise here? Let's just make the end goal happen. Huge theological implications for Jesus. Let's skip the cross. That whole Garden of Gethsemane thing, that whole blood thing, that whole three nails thing, that whole throwing a crown thing, that whole beaten, mocked, scourged, despised, spit on, humiliated, naked from a piece of wood in front of everybody thing. That whole self-sacrifice thing, that whole putting others first thing, that whole obeying God no matter what thing. Let's skip that whole mess and take the easy way out. Does that sound familiar to everyone or just me? 
Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you got to pick up your cross, deny yourself, come after me. The way of following Jesus is the way of the cross. The way of the world is the way of shortcuts. I want the bread now. I want the circumstances fixed. And I want the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I don't want to go the way of the cross. I don't want to suffer. And I don't want to be hungry. That's not Christianity. That's satanic. Christ was the victor over all these things. Without sin. So that we can read and act on Hebrews now. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because Jesus was victorious. We now have a great high priest who understands us to whom we could go, from whom we can get help whenever we are in need. So there we close. But let me say this. Many of you are thinking, well, Britt, it's not an issue of temptation for me today because I already gave in. I already gave up. I already went there. The good news for you is what Peter said. Repent of your sins that times of refreshment may come from being in the presence of the Lord. The good news for you is what John said. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The good news for you is what Paul said. Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. The good news for you is that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So you gave in to the temptation. Tomorrow's a new day and you have new tools. Today, come to the throne of grace. Receive mercy. Come before Jesus and confess your sins and let him minister directly to you with the Father's love. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful hope that we have in Christ. For your your great example of being victorious, help us, Jesus, to walk victorious in these things. And Lord, for those of us that have been so not victorious in so many areas, as we confess to you and humble ourselves before you today, would you flood us, fill us, thrill us with a Father's love, with the grace and mercy that you brought to us in the cross? Would we find rest in your love today? Lord, save those of us who are trying to prove ourselves worthy of your love. We're just not. You love us while we were yet sinners and you died for us even then. Help us just to rest in the fact that we are the beloved of God in Christ and to receive great strength from that today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.